Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Live at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., you're listening to The Tidbit, brought to you by Curate. I'm your host and the CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. Do you run a small business or have dreams to start one? Well, here at The Tidbit, we've got your back. Each week, we talk through tidbits of knowledge around starting or running a small business with a food and beverage lens. One of my absolute favorite, 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 favorite conversations to have with my peers is around the future of work and maybe more importantly, how we got to where we are now. In my opinion, we're at this exciting time where we must rethink new systems, detangling ourselves from our past beliefs that no longer serve us. And in fact, this month, I've been in circles of bigger business leaders who specifically dedicate time, labor, and resources to employees who have the sole focus of future-proofing their company's operations. Seriously. This concept of future-proofing is the process of anticipating the future and developing methods of minimizing the effects of shocks and stresses of future events. So, as a small business owner or an emerging entrepreneur, how do we begin thinking about our businesses, the intermingling of our professional and personal lives, because, come on, they tend to be one and the same in the early stages, in the context of this huge societal shift. I love learning, and I want to soak up all of the information I can, my practice of future-proofing, if you will. So why do we have these core beliefs about work, our work devotion, and what does this mean for the future of work, especially in entrepreneurship? I am Absolutely giddy that we are sitting down today with Rahaf Arfouche, a digital anthropologist and best-selling author who researches the impacts of emerging technologies on our society. We're going to take a quick break and be right back to discuss our belief systems of work, the historical tension between creativity and productivity, and the future of work. We'll be right back.
you're listening to The Tidbit, and I'm your host, Kim Bryden. We're here with Rahaf Harfouche, a digital anthropologist, best-selling author, and the executive director of the Red Thread Institute of Digital Culture, where she leads a team of researchers in exploring the implications of the first global digital culture on how we live our lives. Hello, Rahaf. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Me too. So in my opinion, you know, as I just mentioned at the top of the show, we're going through a cultural shift of work where our belief systems are still rooted in the past. I feel like you might agree with me. And <laughs> your novel, Hustle and Float, examines this shift. And just to tee up our conversation, I want to quote an excerpt from your book. You write, we wanted to understand why to figure out and trace back the history that has created a nation of people who are overworked and overstressed. Instead of better managing our time, our energy, or our food, you wanted to dig deeper and examine the beliefs and attitudes, our operating system, if you will, that runs in the background, influencing every decision we make. I'm already fascinating, fascinated, and I cannot wait to read for further, but tell us more. At a high level, what are these historical patterns of work? I mean, arguably, since the genesis of America, resulting in this current tension between productivity and creativity. Just give us more. So jazzed. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing is, is that it's a very complex issue, which is why writing this book was so challenging, because every time I tried to follow one thread, you know, I ended up uncovering more and more different influences. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So the first is to look at our relationship with productivity. And productivity and a lot of performance management systems were created out of necessity for governments and militaries to quantify the labor of large groups of people that were doing standardized tasks. Mm -hmm. So it was created at a time when people were doing repeated tasks that were basically the same. And then during the Industrial Revolution, organizations started borrowing some of this methodology because they had, again, large labor pools that were working on assembly lines, so making widgets or cars or chairs or whatever. So it was easy to measure their performance based on this idea of of measurable quantitative output. The problem is, is that now we're doing work that's nowhere near standardized. We're problem solving, we're building businesses, we're creating communications, we're researching, we're writing, we're doing all of these tasks that are really hard to quantify, yet we're still using these outdated methods to think about our performance. And fundamentally, I believe that productivity and creativity are in opposition to each other because productivity depends on you documenting and justifying every single moment of your life to prove that you are doing something quote-unquote valuable. So from the morning to the the minute that you get up to the time you go to bed, we're shoving our calendar full of meetings and to-do lists and events and all of these things in order to say, hey, we had a productive day. The problem is that creativity requires a bit of unstructured time. It requires rest and recovery. It requires time when you're bored. It requires these like pockets where you just have the space to stop and think about things. And as you can start to see, we don't get a lot of those opportunities in our modern-day work life. So that's kind of one area. The other thing is when you look at historical concepts, and, and Kim, you have to stop me if I, if I talk on too long about this. No, I am already... To cut me. Yeah, no, um, keep going. 
But uh, so the American dream, if you think about the American dream, that it's one of the most powerful beliefs that we have. And it's this idea that if you work hard enough, you can accomplish anything. That's all fine and good. We all believe that. We all support that. But what we often don't talk about is the flip side of the American dream, which is the unspoken belief that if you're not successful, then you probably haven't been working hard enough. So this flip side of the American dream puts a lot of pressure on all of us to get it done. We get productivity shame if we take a rest, if we stop to take a break, if we aren't going all out all the time, then that explains why we're not getting to where we need to be. There's, we've developed this culture where there's like a pride in being busy, where, you know, if it's impossible to choose to rest or to put the phone down because we want to suffer for our work. We want to tell people that we're important. We want to show our importance. Yeah, it's a societal having this overscheduled. Yeah, Yeah. it's a societal marker being like, oh, I'm just so busy. (laughs) How's it going? I'm just so busy today. And it's those statements like those have become like normal exchanges. I don't know about you, but in my friend group, like that's how our it's it's become the de facto greeting. Mm -hmm. How's it going? I'm so busy. But all of that indicates is that we are just validating our own efforts through our language to each other. And then once you wrap in the media, and we can deep dive into all of this, but once you wrap in the media narrative, all of a sudden we're seeing these mythologized accounts of our modern day work heroes. I mean, think about them. You've got your Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos who have these larger than life presence in our media, larger than life presence. We're reading about how they get up at 4 a.m., how they only need three hours of sleep at night, how they work 150 hour weeks every week. And like these things we tend to absorb as the norms and conditions for being successful. Mm -hmm. So put all of these things in, all of these different places that you're getting ideas about work, about what it means to work hard, about what it means about your success if you don't quote unquote work hard and put all of that into a very disruptive technological ecosystem where it's possible to be connected 24 hours a day, where your work follows you home wherever you are, and where you're constantly connected to social media that sells you certain ideas on Instagram, for example, visual cues of what it means to be successful, what it means to quote unquote, you know, hashtag hustle or hashtag so blessed. And you start to see that, wow, we have developed this really crazy relationship with work. Oh, absolutely. And and to just go after that um, collective consciousness, our societal uh, collective consciousness around media and how that's influenced everything. I mean, I had the pleasure of reading the opening of your book and you draw a lot of inspiration from Beyonce, <laughs> deeming yourself a <laughs> Beyonceologist. And so let's let's talk about her for a second. Why does Beyonce act as such a great metaphor for your research and the principles highlighted in Hustle and Float? So I love Beyonce, but more than just, you know, being so in awe of her creative genius, I don't think there is any other living entertainer out like right now that so embodies the collision of productivity and creativity, of this idea Mm. of monetizing our creative talent into a business empire, of being recognized by peers, of being given awards, of having, building, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth um, of, of business ventures and of having this brand exposure. Like, she is a cultural force. She represents the gold standard of creative success. Yeah. And I don't think there's anybody else who has that that 
influence. You know, when she speaks, people listen. When she, when she does something, people pay attention. And she, when you read about a lot of the um, stories and the narrative that is written about Beyonce, one of the major driving forces, a part of her brand, if you will, is the fact that she has this insane work ethic, that she is unstoppable, that there's all these almost like urban legends of, you know, her just rehearsing while writing for her new album, while being a mother, while running her business ventures, how after every show she takes notes and she um, sends notes to her team about things that that could be improved. Like, Mm. she's just seen, you know, Harvard Business School has a case study about her work ethic. Oh my! And so, in the in the cultural psyche, I don't think there's been anyone quite like her who bridges, you know, the artistic space, the creative space, the business space, the productivity space in quite the same way. And I was very fascinated by her because I often felt very inadequate when I thought about how much she was producing and how she was this ideal that we were all striving towards. At least that I was striving towards this idea of be greater, do bigger things, be ambitious, be driven. Mm-hmm. Like and all of those Instagram actually, memes that say, you know, uh, you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> it's and priming exactly you to right. feel like, inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just telling us, like, it's just dangling this idea of performance in front of us. Again, you know, if you're not working hard enough, if, not, it's, if you're not as successful as Beyonce, it's because you haven't worked hard enough. But what really fascinated me was that in all of the coverage came across this very small article from 2011 that said that Beyonce herself was so overworked that she took a year off because she suffered burnout and she had to take care of her mental and physical well-being and she took a break for a year. Wow. And so this just totally stunned me because here you have the person that is the standard for success. And if the person who is the standard herself can't live up to this ideal, then that to me signaled that there were some huge inconsistencies between the stories we're telling ourselves about success and what success actually looks like in practice. Yeah. And I think we tend to um, have a distorted view of time. Um, we may think that someone's constantly creative, like creatively um, producing, but it, there could be years in between that creative output. I think about um, a local business owner here who's now quite well known, Seth Goldman of Honesty. He built his empire which is now absorbed by Coca-Cola for 10 years before they even remotely made a profit. But people will look onto him saying like, oh, success overnight. Um, And so I think looking back on even some of these creative outputs, I don't know the time span between her last album and say the development of Lemonade or when we all got to experience Lemonade. Um, But Mm -hmm. it it requires a lot of time and space. I mean, all of the anecdotes we've heard all of our lives of the great artists of Greek and Roman era, just having time and space with their friends drinking wine before they're able to create their (laughs) masterpieces. You know, we need that. We need that downtime in order to be our most creative selves. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Filling our calendars with the notion of busyness really is completely at odds with what we need to do as creative professionals. And arguably, that's what's going to set us apart in the future, I think. 
Absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that we're connected in, again, to the internet, which makes everything urgent all the time. We live in the sense of false urgency where things go viral and they're instant and everything's happening in the now that often we forget, you know, internet time versus real time. I mean, you think of, uh, I remember mentioning something to my sister and being like, oh, I saw this video. And she's like, oh, that video is from three months ago. It's so old, mm. you know? And so we have this idea where our, our, our concept or, or our ability of understanding the present now is expanding because we're infinitely connected to all these stories that are happening simultaneously. So I think we're losing some of our ability to, to be able to accurately measure the time. I mean, think about that 10 years. 10 years is a long time to build a business, but that's what it took. And then you'll see just like an Instagram account with millions of people's of, uh, of followers. And then you'll think to yourself, well, that person just sort of came on the scene, never seeing everything that had to fall into place for that condition to happen. Exactly. And before we cut to a small break, I've been mentioning your book, Hustle and Float, and I really want you to share with our listener why this name, where did it come from? Tell us more about the concept of hustle and floating. So the term hustle and float, I learned from the father of one of my friends who is a river guide, and it's a term that's used to describe the perfect whitewater rafting trip. Because on the perfect whitewater rafting trip, there's times when you hustle, so you have to exert a lot of effort to navigate the rapids, to get yourself, to propel yourself to, to the destination that you want to, to achieve, to reach. And then there's the float, where there come certain parts of the trip where you have to lift up your paddle and you get to let the river do some of the work and you get to enjoy the scenery and take a break. And I found that there's a lot of similarities with the way that we work, though I think that we've forgotten how to float and we're focused so much on the hustle. Now, the metaphor of the whitewater rafting is interesting because if you have a trip with all hustle, then you'll get tired, you'll make mistakes, and you might even get into an accident. You might, you know, you'll be, you won't even enjoy the trip. But if you float too much, you won't have any say in where you go. And so it was about, I really love the idea of that balance of being able to go from these states of high performance into states of intentional rest all in pursuit of an ultimate destination, that the two pieces fit together as a part of a successful strategy for people with ambitious dreams. Mm, that is beautiful. Listener, I just want you to think about that for a second. There's this overworked um, our idea of wanting to control an entire situation, i.e. our lives, but we need to be okay with maybe the discomfort of just letting universal forces guide us let our intuition and our energy be able to sit still for a second and let us just be um, so we'll take a quick break and then we're going to come right back with Rahaf. the track you're listening to during the break is called bring a little love by keto and if you're tuned in you're listening to full service radio You're listening to The Tidbit, and we're back with Rahaf Harfouche, a digital anthropologist and best-selling author who researches the impacts of emerging technologies on our society. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, Rahaf, we've been discussing your book, Hustle and Float, and the book is segmented into four parts very intentionally. 
So why did you choose to structure the book this way? And can you talk us through each section so that we can wet our palates, so to speak, with what we'll able, what we as the reader will be able to learn and glean from each section? Yeah, so this book covers a lot of different um, topics. And I wanted to do this because every time I tried to research and to find the answers for myself, a better, better way of working, I found that a lot of books just focused on one element. It was either about nurturing your, your creativity or being more efficient with your productivity. And it was, it always seemed to sort of be deep diving. So I wanted to create a book that what, that had a holistic approach that covered all the different ways that some of these hidden forces impact our creativity and our ability to do the work that we feel called to do. And so I, I, this book is sort of like an operating manual for ambitious, creative-driven people. It's for mm. people who want to do awesome things, but that don't believe that we have to sacrifice our health, our relationship, or our sanity in getting there. And in order to have this conversation, you have to give people all the pieces. And so the book's broken down into four sections. The first talks about our systems, so our history, you know, what, where did our ideas of creativity and productivity come from? How did they evolve? How did the fact that creativity wasn't really a valued employee trait until, you know, very later on, until about, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, and how did that change the way performance was managed? So understanding, like, where we came from and where a lot of things like the eight-hour work we came from, where our ideas of personal productivity came from. Mm. I think it's important to understand the origin story because that's the only way that we can figure out what parts we want to keep and what parts don't serve us anymore as we move into a different type of working environment. Totally. The second section is our stories. So the media, what are the, the, the stories that we tell ourselves about success? Who are our modern day work heroes? What are the mythologies, you know, of the self-made man, this idea of the programmer in the garage, um, you know, struggling until they're able to build a billion dollar business, looking at all of the the ways that we talk about work in the media, in television, in movies, when you're at the airport, and you walk by a magazine stand and every magazine cover tells you how to get more done, how to the successful secrets of creative people, why waking up at 5 a.m. is the best thing to do, why a side hustle um, that you can run between midnight and 2 a.m. is a great way to, to build your fortune. So really looking at what are the values that society has agreed upon represents success, mm. what happens to those and how they influence us. And then the third section is ourself, which is our biology. What does neuroscience say about creativity and productivity? What is it? What are the optimal neurological conditions for creativity? For example, daydreaming. Daydreaming is an essential component of being creative. It's an essential brain function that helps us process and learn and absorb all of the information that we've consumed during the day. But daydreaming is often considered to be a waste of time. If mm. you're not doing something, if you're not quote-unquote productive, then that time is wasted, which goes against all of the brain science that we have about what makes creative thinkers tick. Mm. And then finally, the fourth section is scenarios, which is how do all of these forces play in a world where we have the internet, where we have the gig economy, where there's different business models and there's different ways for people to connect to each other and for people to learn? And what does the future of work look like? So those are sort of the gist. I wanted it to be this book that kind of tells our story as productive creatives from a bunch of different angles so that we ourselves can gain a better understanding of how to live lives, you know, I say, I always say instead of human productivity, humane productivity, mm. how to balance 
ambition and success and drive with a life that we actually enjoy living. Mm. I think that term is fascinating, uh, productive creatives, <laughs> being that we're in the knowledge economy now. And, and I just think it's absolutely incredible that you've been able to c- capture all of these macro forces at play while also looking at the individual in this process. And I think for our listener who may be an entrepreneur, small business owner, it's really important to understand what is um, affecting you from a space that you may not even consciously believe you're being affected. Again, all of these um, macro forces of the American dream to our media and influence to uh, what you even see your Instagram peers doing and you trying to live up to that strange standard, even though it may not be that person's actual life they're living. It's just a, <laughs> a, a perception. Um, and, and to really talk about that, the, that mental health component to this constant output that we're, for some reason, telling ourselves we must do, you went through a severe burnout while writing this book and even stated that through it all, You berated yourself for not being able to get it together, for not writing enough, missing word count deadlines, not waking up at 5 a.m. to journal and drink kale smoothies. So (laughs) (laughs) while while leaving some intrigue for our listener to dive into the book further, I'm wondering, could you share a few tips or resources you've used to make some real positive change in your own life? Absolutely. And um, I just want to say nothing personal against kale smoothies. I love a good kale smoothie for sure. Um, For me, honestly, and and I've heard this echoed for this book, we talked to hundreds of creatives, of entrepreneurs, designers, business owners, writers, executives, and everyone said the same thing. They all felt like they weren't doing enough. And so one of the most damaging beliefs that we have, I think, as modern-day productive creatives is this idea that we can produce the same type of work in the same way at the same pace all year round. And that's just not the case. We're human beings. And for me, one of the most positive changes has been to become obsessed with identifying the different cycles in my own life, whether they are seasonal cycles, whether they are energy cycles during the day, whether they're creativity cycles of where I am in my process, and to, to work with these cycles instead of against them. So when I look at my week or when I look at my month, you know, I don't treat every day as the same. I don't treat every day as I'm going to get to my desk from nine to nine, you know, and hustle, and I'm going to do the same work in the same way all the time. I have learned that on a day when I am writing, that I can only write, say, for like a couple of hours in the morning, and that's a high cognitive task. I'm tired. So in the afternoon, I might cut myself a break, and I might take the afternoon off, or there's a day where I'm going to be doing errands, you know, and I'm going to run errands all day and then then do emails at night and I might work longer that day. And then also things like, it sounds silly, but during the year, you know, I often tend to write more in the winter months than in the summer months when it's nice outside and I want to go out and I want to be doing other types of activities and other types of work. So I've learned to structure my quarters and my year around these types of seasons. And even during the day, it took me a long time to make peace with the fact that I am not an early bird, and I'm never going to be an early bird. I'm a night owl through and through, and that's okay. So learning that, like, my peak creative time was at 
3 p.m. in the afternoon that it was okay to wake up and have a slow morning and walk my dog and go to the gym and do other things knowing that I was working towards this peak period in the afternoon. Mm. And just being really true to those cycles because it has made me work less but my my output is better. It's higher quality. I'm producing my best stuff. And most importantly, like my relationships aren't suffering and my health aren't suffering, isn't suffering. And let me tell you, like all the ambitious dreams that you have in the world, all the things that you want to accomplish, all the goals that you set for yourself, none of those are going to matter if your health takes a dive. Yeah. If your health is, if you lose your health, and I mean, I went through burnout, I had hair falling out of my head. Like, None of those goals and word counts and chapters and projects mattered when I felt so tired that I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And that was a really big reminder to me that like that the health part needs to be a fundamental aspect of my business as an entrepreneur, as a, as a consultant, you know, I need to do that. And in order to do that, I need to just recognize that I'm not a machine and then to build systems that are built for me, not systems that were built for a factory worker during the Industrial Revolution. Totally. And it is okay and beautiful that we are not machines. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that is the truth. And uh, it will be how we differentiate ourselves from machines someday. Um, Absolutely. So how can people find out more about you, get your book, find out more resources on this, these topics? Where are your digital links for people to check out? Uh, you can find me pretty much across the web at Rahaf Harfouche. Uh, and if you want to get a sneak peek at the introduction of Hustle and Float, which comes out on February 19th, you can go to hustleandfloat.com and uh, download the introduction. Thank you so much for joining us, Rahaf. This is incredible work, and I'm so eager to read the entirety of this amazing novel. Um, this show, Listener, is based on a bi-weekly newsletter that we send out at Curate called The Tidbit, and in it we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning, five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. So head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E.co to sign up. And We'd love if more budding entrepreneurs and listeners like you could find out about the tidbit. Our mission fundamentally at Curate includes the sharing of education and access to resources. So the best way to reach more folks like you is honestly to leave a review in iTunes. So I would be really appreciative if you'd head over to your app and leave a little tidbit on there about what you've learned here on the show Thank you so much for joining us today. And until next time, listener, remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.